Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association and hosted by John Paul Young. Hello and welcome to the Shed Wireless Podcast, made in Australia and distributed all over the world for the love of shedding. It's great to have you here with me on the Shed Wireless Podcast. Thanks for stopping by. It's nice to see old and new friends. Seems like everyone is gearing up for the silly season. What's going on at your shed? Let me know. Send an email to theshedwireless at menshed.net. Here's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. My special guest is Scott Bevan. You may have heard Scott on the ABC radio or perhaps picked up one of his books. I've turned the tables and I'm interviewing the interviewer. Scott and I had a great yarn laughing about life, change and slowing down. Resident handyman Marty is back on the tools in the workshop with Carbatec. You'll have to excuse his drooling. For our Shed in the Spotlight, I learned a few tidbits about the Northern Territory's Palmerston Men's Shed from the Secretary, Jill. AMSA's Stuart Torrance has his finger on the pulse of medical research. And I'm thinking about my good old mate, Butch. A bit more about that later. Let's get into it. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with my good friend, John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders across Australia and around the world. Get ready to shed. Yeah, there's something for you at the men's shed. Scott Bevan is a born Novocastrian. Having grown up near the coast, Scott could smell the sea spray from his home. And whenever he attempted to surf, Scott could taste salt water, usually as he was unceremoniously dumped. He remains to this day one of the few former residents of the famous surf break at Merriweather who can't ride a board. (laughs) Realising he may not have had what it took to be the next Mark Richards, Scott instead dropped in on journalism and storytelling. And he's been riding that way for close to 40 years with a long list of accolades to his name. All right, Scott, I've been looking forward to this because you've interviewed me quite a few times. And, <laughs> payback um, time, payback. Uh, so now it's my turn. It's uh, time to interview the interviewer. Um, now, our listeners, is a, most of them are retired mm. and uh, you're probably getting close to that retirement age. You're, you're approaching 60. Yep. Um, so you seem to have a good way of slowing things down, as you put it. So tell me about your exploits uh, in a kayak, uh, of which there are many. Well, the thing is, and thank you for yarning with me, the thing is we all know that life has just got faster and faster and faster, so we have to look for ways to slow down. And this hit me while I was working as a broadcast journalist where – you skim across the surface at 100 miles an hour and you have lots of what feel like experiences. But when at the other end, you think back upon it, you think, well, I didn't really see much or I didn't uh, go on much of a, a tour, as it were, a trip. It felt more like one of those crazy Contiki tours or something where you go really quickly in 35 countries in 17 days and have a great time, or, although in my case, a professional satisfying time but it was like well what did I experience I realized I had to slow down slow down to look around observe meditate think about things a lot more almost as an antidote to what I did for a job and I found my vessel for slowing down literally was a kayak to get paddling to literally learn how to go with the flow and this gave me the sense of almost buying time to look around in the wider world but also to look around in the wider world, but to also look within and start to think about what brought me joy and satisfaction in life. So that's why I hopped in a kayak, to slow down and look at the world. And, uh, the, I mean, you know, we, we broadcast from uh, from Newcastle, New South Wales. Yeah. Um, and our, our big river is the Hunter River. And you, you, you've already kayaked the whole length of the thing twice yeah uh you did a book and uh you've just recently uh, com- 
completed your second journey of the, of the Under River um, and you've re-released the book. So tell me about the difference between the first time and the second time. Which was the whole reason I did it, because it was 10 years on and people kept asking for The Hunter, which was the name of the book. It had gone out of print and I thought, oh, maybe I should reprint it myself. I'll publish it. And then I thought, well, no, I'd like to give a little more. And it was the perfect excuse for me to get paddling because I'd use this technique with The Hunter, with a book about Sydney Harbour called The Harbour, where I paddled for the best part of a year around Sydney Harbour to learn about that waterway, and also the lake, uh, to look at Lake Macquarie, Australia's largest coastal saltwater lake. So I knew, again, that kayaking wasn't just a way to slow down. It was a way to learn about stuff and learn about a place and, above all, learn about people. But what I wanted to do the second time paddling down the Hunter, it was the midst of the COVID lockdowns where we were in and out of lockdowns. We we're all suffering cabin fever. One thing you were allowed to do was kayak. And as soon as boundaries opened up again, I thought, I'm combining kayaking with getting out there and paddling the river again. For above all, to chart change, chart change in the river, chart change in the lives of those along the river who I'd met first time 10 years earlier, and to chart change in my life. Mm. Now, there'd already been other markers, of course, John, charting change. One is a mirror. I realised I'd changed. And another was I'd, uh, my marriage had come to an end. And, and another reason why I wanted to get paddling to just clear my head and to think about things. So there were markers of change, but I thought if I really want to reflect on how changes occurring around me and within me, I'm getting back on the river and that's why I got paddling again. Right. But what was the big difference between the first time and the second time? Was it was there any vast differences you saw yep. or was it same again? The biggest change was my muscles hurt a great <laughs> deal more. I'd almost think that I had aged. In 10 years. Yeah. Well, you have. <laughs> oh, John, don't break it to me like that. Be a gentle about it. Jeez. Sorry. There's no, there's no kid gloves here, mate. <laughs> uh, I know that. Um, in terms of the river, the thing about rivers is, and no wonder we use them as metaphors for life, you know, that the life is like a river. It has a beginning, has an end. A lot of meanders, has times of flood, times of drought, and it continues to flow. So I understand why they use the metaphor in that way and why a river can almost delude you into thinking nothing has changed. Yeah. Like there's no sense of past, no sense of future. It's like the water flows and you're in an ever-present. But I did notice along the banks change. The coal mining industry has literally dug in deeper in sections of the Hutter River. And I think the competition for that water while there's all sorts of policies and plans and everyone wants the best for the river, I think the competition for that river and the areas along its banks is enormous. Yeah. So I got a sense of that competition not lessening whatsoever and therefore I wonder what's that mean for the future of the river itself when so many people expect it to play a role in their life, whether that's a coal mine, a vineyard, a farm, even people seeking a tree change and want the river to be there in their backyard as something beautiful to go down to. Mm. They've all got expectations and demands of that river. Yeah. But all those, the pile of those pressures due to expectations and demands can't be good for the river. No, and it can't be good for the, the big picture of, uh, of global warming that we're supposed to be acting on. Um, and I don't know about you, but just from where I'm sitting, it, it doesn't seem to be going that well. And speaking of things not going that well, yeah. uh, people may not know that uh, you were the ABC's correspondent uh, in Russia yeah. for, for two years. Now, that must have made an amazing uh, time and an amazing experience. I mean, you've actually seen a bit of uh, Putin's special military operation uh, in chain when um, when you were in, well, not invited but ordered <laughs> to get into a vehicle <laughs> and you drove to Tbilisi in Georgia uh, where uh, Russia
Russia basically reclaimed Georgia with, with little resistance or no resistance at all. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. I was uh, in the Moscow Bureau as the Russia correspondent for two years. And in that time, there were an enormous amount of experiences, as you can imagine, in that enormous territory that is Russia. It's just vast, stretching from Europe to Asia. And, yeah. and so, therefore, it's going to offer you all sorts of experiences. One that came out of the blue was when uh, Russia pushed into Georgia, or at least into two provinces that Russia contested, saying it was Russian territory. These two territories were called Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And so down we went to cover this event from the Russian side, of course, and spent time with the Russian military, which was an eye-opener. And we were in a, an armoured vehicle that pushed into South Ossetia and driving through those villages that were aflame and had been abandoned was an extraordinary sight that I won't forget. And then when we were in there, in South Ossetia, the event you're referring to was a particular day where a Russian officer gathered up the international media and told us to get into these vehicles and said, the question was asked of the officer, where are we going? And he said, Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. And we're like, that can't be right and thought something's been lost in translation here. So asked again, sorry, sir, where are we going? And he said, Tbilisi, get in, hurry up. So in we piled into the vehicles and we did drive to the main road that pushed into the capital of Georgia. And sitting there was a, a column of tanks, Russian tanks and other heavy armoured vehicles. And we didn't go to Tbilisi. Tbilisi was still 40 maybe more 50 kilometres away. But it was pure propaganda that the international media had been gathered up to film this moment to show this Russian column sitting on the main road to Tbilisi that I presume was to make the statement to the world and particularly to Georgia, we can go pushing in there whenever we want. We can take Tbilisi if we choose. Mm. And... It was a, an eye-opening moment. <laughs> then we got back in the vehicles and went back to the South Ossetian capital called Sinvali, which had been heavily damaged by the fighting. And we are back there, and it was like, well, that was surreal. That was a bizarre experience, but hardly the only surreal or bizarre experience <laughs> in my time in Russia. Uh, and, and unlike most people in the Western world, you had a hint that uh, Vladimir Putin was... Um, was planning this way back then, well, even before he uh, became, uh, what's his title these days? Uh, well, if you ask him, President for Life. President for Life, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, I, when, uh, as far as you were concerned, when he decided to reinstate statues of Stalin around the place, you could see that as the beginning. Well, yeah, and he wasn't even president at that point. He'd... There'd been this uh, very smooth transition uh, during my time there from Putin in his first two terms of president and under the constitution that at that time, that was all he was allowed. And so then a fellow called Dmitry Medvedev became president. Putin became prime minister. Uh, things were changed in the time of uh, Medvedev being in president. And what do you know? Uh, Vladimir Putin was allowed to run again for president and was overwhelmingly voted into that position where he's mm. been ever since. Yeah. But even from uh, the position of prime minister, there were things going on, such as the push into Georgia. And at the time, the international community were very concerned, of course, but it happened at the time of uh, the Olympic Games. So most eyes in the world were elsewhere other than Georgia. Yeah. They were concentrating on the World Games, the uh, Olympic Games. And then, of course, we had it again with the first push into part of Ukraine and taking part of Ukraine with Crimea, and now we've got it all over again. So yeah. you, you wondered what he was up to back then. But it was the small thing that you mentioned that made me think, wow, there's a real change going on here because 
there was to be a reinstatement in certain metro stations and anyone who's been to Moscow and ridden the underground knows how extraordinary some of these uh, underground stations are that uh, were seen by the Soviet leaders as palaces for the people. These ornate mm. uh, places that are also full of propaganda, really, Soviet propaganda for the worker, for the, uh, the greatness of Russia. And what had been removed post-Soviet years were the busts of Stalin. Well, near the end of my time, they were starting to pop up again with the Prime Minister, Putin, saying, well, look, they should be back in there. We shouldn't be trying to rewrite history like that. And um, we have to acknowledge what a leader he was. Mm. And so when that was happening, I was thinking there's a real change happening, I think, in Russian politics and perhaps in the character of how Russia wants to be seen. Mm. And, and uh, we'll skip off from that as, mm. you know, how they want to be seen. Uh, you also had... Uh the amazing experience of being there and watching a, one of the Soyuz rockets take off with uh, three astronauts on board. So uh, yeah. now, where was that exactly? Well, they still, they being Russia, still has a base in Kazakhstan, in a part of uh -huh. Kazakhstan, uh, just out of a place called Baikonur. And it's where the Soyuz rockets have taken off from for many, many decades and was such an epicenter of the space race and is still, or was certainly then, uh, a, a very important part of the Russian space program. And at that point, the space shuttles weren't going up, so the Americans had to hitch a ride with the Russians. So on this particular journey to the International Space Station that I was watching being launched, there was an American and a Russian and a space tourist um, someone who paid millions and millions of dollars to the Russian space agency to be in on the show for 10 days. The two other guys, the cosmonaut, cosmonaut and astronaut, a uh, fantastic fellow called Mike Barrett, um, they were going up for six months to the space station. So it's in the middle of nowhere. It was vast. It was like in a desert with this one vertical exclamation mark in the landscape, which was the Soyuz rocket. And we were allowed something I can't imagine would NASA would allow. <laughs> they took us right up to the rocket just before it was launched and they were pumping liquid nitrogen all over it from memory to cool it, to keep it cool. And the thing was groaning like a beast. <laughs> it was the most extraordinary sound. And then a few hours later, the beast literally roared to life. And we're about a kilometre, maybe a little more away at a viewing area. And you can watch the flames. But before that, I should say, we watched the three guys get in it. And they're sort of being helped along because of the size and the bulkiness of their suits. And I'd managed to talk to Mike the day before. So I could see Mike through the helmet and... In these three guys going, it was like, look at these three guys getting into this groaning beast. Well, a few hours later, watching that beast come to life with that flame pouring out of the bottom, and you saw the flame first, and then the sound hits you, and then the thud in the chest as it takes off, and this cracking sound as though the universe is being cleaved open by the sound as this rocket picks up speed and just disappears. It was, John, almost emotionally overwhelming to think three human beings, three lives were in that amid this cacophony of cracking sound as though the earth is opening up and the flame, and slowly you watch the flame disappear and watching three human beings disappear into the cosmos. It mm. was a phenomenal experience and one I'll cherish for the rest of my life. And I st I've stayed in touch with Mike Barrett since. Right. And Mike, bless him, took me on a tour of the Johnson Space Station. And when he was training for a, uh, a space shuttle mission, in fact, he was on the second last of the space shuttle missions, before the space shuttle was retired. So I was over there for part of his training program, uh, a day on the job, so to speak, and he got me to sit in a Soyuz with him. And so to sit in that Soyuz capsule, like what he'd been in in Baikonur, 
and how cramped it was, how spare it was. I just tip my hat to him from no other angle than claustrophobia. I couldn't bear to be in there for very long, let alone for days. I just, the limits of human experience is just extraordinary. And Mike Barrett is one of those for me. Ah, that's fantastic. Well, we might even in the future, um, I'll see if you can uh, rustle up an interview with Mike Barrett. That would be uh, that would be quite something if we could organise that. I'll um, I'll let everybody know if we're successful in yeah. the future. Now you um, you're about to resume uh, part of your broadcasting career. You're going to do some filling on uh, Newcastle ABC. I oh, am yeah. uh, starting. Probably right now, as, as people are listening. So I wish you every success with us, Scott. And thank, thank you, you very much for having a, a chat with us on our wireless, the Shared Wireless. Thanks, mate. It's been my pleasure, John. Always a pleasure yarning with you. Thank you. What an interesting bloke. You can pick up a copy of Scott's book from www.scottbevan.com.au forward slash books. On the tools, on the shed wireless, with John Paul Young. For today's On the Tools, our resident handyman Marty Least is in the workshop with Ian from Carbotech. Born in a Brisbane garage in 1987, Carbotech is a great supporter of men's sheds around the country, delivering a range of woodworking tools at value-for-money prices with world-class service for all types of woodworkers, from beginners to skilled craftsmen. Over to you, Marty. G'day, JPY. Today... I'm down in Melbourne, of all places, cold and windy and wet, but still a beautiful, beautiful part of the, uh, the country. And I'm down at Carbotech, the, uh, the office down here, or the, the uh, warehouse here in Melbourne. And having a look around, I haven't been to the warehouse, I've been up in the Brisbane one, but uh, haven't been down here in Melbourne before. But this is a real eye-opener. Uh, if anyone's not familiar with Carbotech, Carbotech is um, an Australian company uh, wood supplier supplies hand tools power tools machinery and finishing supplies and it is just the uh, the one-stop shop for any woodworking enthusiast and I tell you if you are looking for any inspiration you might want to come down and visit one of these stores because there's so many little knickknacks and things and tools and and what not here it's just a real eye-opener and it's a, a real inspiration as I said so I'm here today with Ian McMaster Who's, um, who's, who works on the floor here, and he's going to tell us a little bit about Carbotech and what they supply. So how are you, mate? Not bad, Marty. Yourself? Very well, thank you. Thanks for the cool weather. I uh, love it down here. Mate, so Carbotech, how long has Carbotech been operating in Australia? I couldn't tell you that, but I know this store in Melbourne's moved at least three times, and um, I get a lot of customers in here who've been long-term customers who remember the store 20 years ago, and yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Wow. So, mate, what do you have here? Like, what is it? Like, what, what's, the, what's the main deal here? We have everything to do with woodwork. So whether you like turning things on the wood lathe, um, carving, we have a lot of carving tools, down to your big stuff you might need to make a workbench, like your thicknesses, your jointers, big band saws, a resawing material, things like that. So from basically the, the woodwork enthusiast or the hobbyist to the, you know, to the industrial sort of su supplies and su that sort of thing, yeah? Yeah, pretty close to that. Um, a lot of our customers have big work sheds and that, or men's sheds, and who want bigger equipment they can fit in. Um, but we also have benchtop equipment for the person who can only work out their garage and, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, you mentioned men's sheds. I know Carbotech's a big, a big uh, supporter of men's sheds throughout Australia. Oh, I think you offer some discounts to the men's sheds and things. And do you get a lot of the, the guys from the men's sheds coming along here? Yes, um, nearly daily. They come in here looking for whatever they need for that day, or um, to pick up things for the men's shed. And yeah, they're they're all enthusiasts, and they they all know to shop and know a lot of our employees well. And yeah, it's good. Yeah, brilliant. And so, what sort of things are they sort of looking at? And what you know, I know the saw stop's a big one. You guys are the only supplier of the the saw stop, aren't you, in Australia? Yes, we're the only supplier of the saw stop. Um, we sell their cartridges as well. We're also the supplier in Australia for Laguna, um, also Craig products. 
and yeah, a few others. So tell me, okay, so what have we got? We got the, the Source Stop. We all, well, for those who don't know the Source Stop, the Source Stop's an amazing piece of technology with the braking system in case of, you know, going a finger hitting the blade or something. I've seen so many photos and I've heard stories of so many fingers in the sheds being saved with, with the Source Stop. Um, but, but what else? So what are they? So Craig, you mentioned Craig. What do Craig do? Okay, Craig do all your pocket hole jigs and other jigs for cabinetry. Um, they make horses, workbenches. Um, they do a large variety of products and joinery products, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. And, okay, so what else we got here? you got your, your Carbotec brand there. Are they uh, built in Australia? No. Um, they're built overseas. Yep. Um, I don't think there's many products here that are built in Australia. Uh, most of them are either Chinese, Taiwanese, or there's a few Italian products here as well. It's a sad fact nowadays, isn't it? Not much is built in Australia anymore, but yeah. No, there's not the production facilities there used to be. No. Yeah. yeah. So I also see, uh, like, the, the Festool. You know, Festool is the, as I call it, the duck's nuts of all the tools. Uh, they are, you know, the best of the best, the Festool range, isn't it? Yes, they are. They put a lot of um, time and effort and money in production. Um, all their equipment's well balanced and, and really last well. We get very few warranty claims through them. Um, yeah. Yeah, wow. And you've got Laguna Bandsaws. They're some of the best. Yes, they've got a very good reputation, they're an American brand, um, they work extremely well, they've been modified for Australia, so they meet our standards so we can sell them to Australian schools and that. Um, I would say that one thing to keep in mind when buying them, they don't actually come with a blade. You're right. Um, they have a good reputation and they do very good demonstrations with their excellent blades that are worth probably three, four hundred dollars Australian each. Wow. So they allow the customer to decide which blade they want yeah. rather than sell them a blade they're going to be disappointed with. Yeah, And you supply the blades here, obviously? Yes, we sell the blades here. Yeah, right. Yep. Okay. No, brilliant, mate. Okay. So let's have a look around. So we've got, mate, there's everything from everything. Clamps, you know, drill bits, bloody. The Tormek, the sharpening systems, I love those too. They're, they're amazing. A lot of sheds see those. A lot of this stuff I see in the sheds, I think every shed you go to will have a catalogue, a, a Carbotec catalogue on the on the bench somewhere. And the, the guys love it, I know. So, mate, how many stores, Carbotec stores, are there throughout Australia? Well, currently our main headquarters of Carbotec is up in Brisbane. Um, so they've got a warehouse and a store up there. We've got a store in Auburn, in, in New South Wales, in Sydney. Our store here in Melbourne, um, one in Hobart, Adelaide, and one over in Western Australia. Everywhere, everywhere. Yeah, most states, most states, yep. And you've got reps running around the place. I know I do a lot of events around Australia, and you know we try and get the reps to all the events to, um, to show off the products and things and, and, and meet the guys one-on-one. -on -one. We also do online sales, yeah? Yeah, we do online, online sales. Um, our team up in Queensland look after all that. Um, they, they do an okay job. Yeah. They, they get everything out that they've... Because these days you can't really print a lot of catalogues. Things change all the time. Yeah. So it's easier to keep the website up to date than it is to print catalogues and send them out to all the customers and that, yeah. yeah. And I know, like, back in the day when Men's Shed started, they, they basically started... You know, with donated tools from you know the the, the widow down the road whose whose um, husband had passed away, and they say, oh, you know, come down and clean out his shed, and they donate. You know, they have the rusty saws and the old power saws and things like that. But now sheds are evolving in a big way, and they are lashing out. They're saving up, and they want the best of the best products. And I'm noticing that they're getting some really high tech and great mach machinery and stuff. In the, in the sheds, have you noticed that the guys are upgrading all the time? Yeah, well just the other day I sent out a nice big spiral headed uh, thicknesser to one of the men's sheds. Um, they found someone who was willing to donate the money for it, so they were getting it ready. Apparently they're visiting in the next week or so to see the machine up and running. So um, yeah, we see that all the time. So you do demonstrations here as well? and Not so much. Um, we do go out and do some demonstrations when the guy who's here has gone out to a couple of men's sheds and done some demos. Um, I was at a tool show the other week at the Melbourne Guild of Fine Woodwork. Um, where we were there just selling some hand tools over the weekend. And I also know we're doing a school, a, some schools conference yeah. on the 1st of December, I think it is. Yeah, right. So we'll have our rep from New, from New South Wales coming down for that. Yeah. And we'll be packing up some saw stop and the router table and things like that and taking it out to demo for the schools. Yeah, so the saw stops are pretty popular in the schools too, I'm sure. Yeah, our saw stops, our band saws, yeah. everything. Um, they, they're after the best quality and the safest equipment they can get. 
So, mate, these workbenches here, they, they look new. They're a pretty flash kind of a, a workbench. What are, what are these, the, the timber workbenches? What are these ones? Um, so these are a Czech company. They're called Ramia. Um, they do really nice hardwood workbenches. Um, several different workbenches to choose from. Everything from a little foldable workbench you can put in your workshop to one with four vices made for schools. Yeah, well. um, they're all different strengths. Um, some of them have really nice dogs here that actually can sit into the bench. So you adjust it to the right height for your actual work you're doing. So what would they be used for? Those? So if you were playing a bit of material, maybe a thinner bit of material that you're worried about running into the dogs, right. you can actually drop them down below the surface of your material. Yeah, wow. right, eh? Yeah. Um, but no, they're, they're well built. Um, like this one here has got huge thick legs on it. And, uh, and the top's actually 50 mil thick hardwood. Wow. She looks heavy. Okay. It'd be about 100 kilos, yeah. yeah. And Czech, Czechoslovakia, you say, yeah? Yep, yep. They're all European. I think they use uh, European beach for it. Yeah, wow. It is gorgeous. I'll, I'll get a couple of photos of these as well. But, yeah, so all shapes and sizes here as well. Yeah, beautiful. Lathe tools laying around. All these ja oh, the Japanese pool saws over here. Yep. They're pretty cool. Now, that is the master craftsman stuff, that, that gear, isn't it? We have a lot of customers who come in, buy one, use it, fall in love with it, and never go back to a normal saw. Yeah, wow. Really? Yeah. Um, I, I think especially for people who aren't very experienced, uh, trying to saw your timber on the pull rather than the push yeah. makes it a bit easier for you too. Yeah, wow. So, mate, is there anything new, anything newish that you've got coming? Like you've told me the brand, so we've got Craig, you've got the, the Carbotec brand Laguna, you've got the dust extractors here, you've got everything, it's everything. What about, uh, you've got lays, what about routing and things like that? What have you got? Um, yes, yeah, so we've just taken over the contract with Jessam. So Jessam's a Canadian brand, the sort of the, the fathers of the modern router table. So we're selling their brand. They're very good quality, all well made, um, all made in Canada. Um, they have a lot of safety equipment. They've got these sort of rollback systems, so your material can't move the wrong way. Yeah. Um, they're rollers, and they also push the material in towards the fence, so you get a nice straighter cut. Yeah, um, nice. And they branch these not just from the, not from just the router tables, yep. but they also have mechanisms for your table saws as well to do the same job. Yeah. Wow. Forever evolving. Yep. No, oh, fantastic. It's like idiot proof for people like me. Just well, about. both of us. <laughs> um, the better cut I can get, do it once, do it right. Yeah. Um, get it cut perfect, and also protect myself. I don't want materials flying out at me. Yeah. Um, and that's really the brilliant part of their attachment for the table saws. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. Like one hundred percent agree with that sort of thing. It's the, the safety factor is is massive, especially you know, in the sheds, in the schools and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, there's a host of things, guys. I'd encourage anyone to come down here. It's like a it's like a kid in a candy shop sort of an atmosphere. You come here, there's everything here you could want or need, possibly. And, like I say, it's, it's inspirational. There's the scroll saws, vices, lathes galore and some of the most beautiful machinery you'll ever see. So I would encourage anyone to come down or have a look. If, if you get a chance, if you're nearby a store, drop in, have a look around. Like I say, plenty of stuff that's very inspiring. Plus, uh, you know, wet your appetite a little bit and go back to the shed and start saving up. Maybe, maybe a few extra sausage sizzles, boys, so you can um, save up for some of this good gear. Good stuff. Well, mate, thank you very much for having us today. It's been a, a real pleasure, and um, I'm going to go around and take some photos. We might put it in our blog. But, uh, mate, thank you very much. No worries, mate. Great to meet you. Good on you, mate. All right, I'm going to go. Uh, Where's my checkbook? Hey, beautiful. All right, catch you, JPY. Well, while Marty is busy wiping up his drool, you can head to carbotech.com.au to browse the range or find out the location of your closest store. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. You may remember I was lucky enough to get up to the top end a few months back and while I was there, of course, I took the opportunity to get around to a few of the local sheds. On a fine sunny Friday, I headed out to learn from Jill about the Palmerston Men's Shed. I'm here at the Palmerston Men's Shed talking to a lady. <laughs> this is Jill Pascoe. Jill, what's your position here at the shed? 
I'm treasurer slash secretary. Okay, okay. Now, how long has the shed been going? I think about 12 years, 13 years, not quite sure. And how long have you been involved? About five, six years. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the main things uh, that, that get done around this shed? Mainly woodwork, we find that the blokes like to do. They make nesting boxes, orders that come in from people, fixing up furniture, anything to do with wood. There is a little bit of metal work done, but not a lot. Uh-huh. That's kind of the same with most of the sheds that that, that we uh, talk to. It's, uh, it's wood seems to be the favourite thing. I think so. I think there's been a lot of retired carpenters, and they can pass their skills on to the others. Like some of the blokes here had never dealt with wood at all. They were metal workers, but they've learnt wood skills, and they actually enjoy the challenge. I need to do that. I I grew up in the metal world, and I'm terrible at wood. Um, so. Is there is there any um, any younger people get involved in this shed yet? Yes, um, we've got a couple of young fellas that come here. You met one yesterday, Kurt. He's forty two. Mm-hmm. He's a member of the shed. He's got um, an ABI and he can't work, and he finds it quite rewarding coming down here and being useful. We've got another chappy Eddie who comes down. Um, He's a little bit younger. He comes with a care and he enjoys doing his woodwork as well. Well, I mean, you know, you, you're doing a great community service anyway. You know, and, uh, how, how many members do you think you've got at the moment? We've got uh, 31 financial members. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's really good. You know, and uh, just for those who don't know, Palmerston's uh, about, what, 25 minutes out of Darwin, something yeah. like that. Yep. Yeah. And... Um, it's it's a fairly new sort of an area, really, isn't it? Compared, I think it was only established back in the eighties. Yeah, it was after Cyclone Tracy. They moved out to Palmerston. I was up here after Cyclone Tracy, and this was still just all bush. Yes, I was here the week after Tracy. The week, the year after Tracy, and uh, and the whole town was corrugated iron. Well, when I was up here, I was up here two years after, and they were still living in dongers. Yeah, it's, it's been an amazing transformation, this area. Um, is this the the site of the old Palmerston from way, way back in the 1800s, or is, is, is that actually in Darwin? I've been trying to work it out myself, and I can't. Darwin was called Palmerston. Uh-huh. That's where the name came from. And it makes me laugh because a lot of people refer from Darwin refer to Palmerston as Palmer Slum. Oh. But then when you say to them, hang on a minute, do you realise Darwin used to be called Palmerston? It shuts them right up. <laughs> uh, Jill, thanks very much for your involvement. And it's great to see that ladies are involved in the bed sheds or those of, the, those of you out there who think it's a bit sexist. <laughs> I think there's about 33% of the men's sheds have women members. Yes, they do. And, and the, uh, the whole idea of men's sheds was started by women. That's right, exactly, to get the men out of our hair. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Jill. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We acknowledge the Larrakia people, the traditional custodians of the land on which the members of the Palmerston Men's Shed meet. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present. On the Pulse, on the Shed Wireless. I'm sure you're not surprised to learn male participation rates are fairly low when it comes to medical research. Let's see what we can do about that. Over to you, Stuart. Thanks, JPY. I'm Stuart Torrance, and you're listening to On The Pulse, where we talk about anything and everything to do with health and well-being. This week, we're asking the question, why do we need to help researchers? What good is research? Without needing to think about it, AMSA would receive two to three requests each week from universities and other organisations asking us to reach out and engage shedders from across the country in surveys and research projects. Apparently, there's a great need for male insight into these issues that affect us all. In the past, we've placed posts on social media platforms, wrote articles in newsletters, among other ways we reach out to our members we started to notice other important information was being overlooked. 
AMSA took the decision to link with an organisation called joinus.org.au. That's joinus.org.au. And also Step Up for Dementia. Uh, two organisations that are fabulous in regards to collecting a database of willing participants to help with research projects. To this end, we no longer bombard sheds with requests, requests about research. However, we still need to raise the awareness of this important need, as we all know the importance these research projects have, have in regards to the, the development of resources and innovations in health and wellbeing space. Today, we've invited Dr. Zoe Menzel Shearer, a researcher from the University of Sydney who's conducting research called the Neuro Music Trial, investigating the impact of learning piano or singing in a choir on memory and the brain's plasticity in older adults. For me, this is ticking a lot of my interest boxes music, memory, brain health. Welcome, Zoe. How are we? I'm good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Uh, Zoe, <laughs> before we look into your research specifically, tell us where these ideas for uh, research projects come from. Well, I guess for us specifically um, in our lab, we're looking at dementia and dementia um, in Australia and worldwide is one of the leading causes of death. So I guess many um, researchers get the ideas of what to research of the need of trying to solve a problem. And often that is a global problem. You want to do something with the biggest impact that you can. Um, um, other researchers do research based on knowledge and trying to find more smaller mechanistic things. But I think everyone um, in the research field is always trying to solve a problem that can help humanity in the greatest sense, I guess. <laughs> What's the point of having a pool of participants? Can't you just ask Rip Woodchip? He knows everything. Whilst I'm sure Rip is a great source of general knowledge, there are some things that we need a broader insight and input in for those effect it affects. For instance, I've heard Rip is a great singer, but our research is looking into um, the idea of how multiple people can benefit from singing. So that's why we need a large pool of participants because just asking one person on their opinion isn't enough evidence to really get the answers that we need. I didn't think Ring could Rip could do it all on his own. As I said in the beginning, AMSA has partnered with Joiners as well as uh, stepupfordementia.org.au to promote shedder participation in research projects that seek to address important issues whilst uh, not bombarding sheds with each and every request that we receive. What do you think the idea of having a pool of people willing to participate in research would have on research? I think it is amazing. As a researcher, I've been um, for about six years now, I've been involved in multiple research studies. And it's the biggest part, uh, one of the hardest challenges is actually finding people to participate in the research. It's all very well to come out and say, we've found the cure for this, or we've found the preventative for that. But if we have no one to actually test it and to sign up and put their hand up to volunteer, then we can't actually bring the world those great new findings. So I think to actually have a pool of people who have said, yes, I'm willing to help. This is some characteristics about me. If I'm relevant, please contact me, is a dream for researchers, especially because we go far and wide trying everything we can to try and get people to sign up from putting up flyers. We go in the news. We put on Facebook advertising. We do whatever we can. And to have a pool of people already willing to help and not just um, cold calling people who might say, no, why are you calling me, which can also waste our time a lot, um, mm. is amazing. <laughs> uh, Zoe, in our previous conversation, you were telling me about your PhD uh, project and uh, how difficult it was to recruit uh, participants to that. Can you just sort of re-outline what, what you did in that process and how difficult it was? Yeah, so for my PhD project, I ran a clinical trial and I only needed 40 people. But the initial call, we did a pre-screen phone call and that lasted about 10 to 15 minutes. We had to do that for over 
maybe 500 to 1,000 people because the amount of people who you actually do that first contact with is not the amount of people who you actually get you have to do. So what we needed to do was we had to contact over 1,000 people to get our 40. So this was through emailing them or people signing up to our website and starting to go through our online pre-screen. Luckily, we had an online pre-screen in place so we didn't have to speak to all 1,000 people, but we did do a Um, half an hour to 40 minute phone conversation with 100 people to get to 40. Um, So um, that's why we need so many people to sign up because to weed through the 1000 people who thought they might be interested to for them to send emails saying I've got this or I'm not I'm not free or I've got this condition or weed through who might be eligible to then be on the phone to um, 100 people for 40 minutes to do a longer screening to get to 40. It took, you know, months and months and months, you know, a PhD took me four years to do my whole PhD, but including the write up and the planning. Um, But that's why we need so many people, because even if you're not eligible for that particular study, you're, we need to go through so many people to get to the ones that we want, and you might be perfect, and you might have a great time. (laughs) (laughs) and will you gonna learn so much uh, just by participating in in such uh, such things so the statistical strength of the data increases uh, is increased uh, by the the number of participants i would get Uh, and um, that is that 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 figure of a thousand people contacting a thousand people to get only 40 participants it just shows the need for a, a pool. So the differences between male and female, I suppose um, it, it's not just about uh, strength applications. It, it's about how these different issues affect both uh, both genders in, in this particular case. And I'm sure there's uh, plenty of other research for um, everybody else out there. Um, so, you know, have, having to contact so many people, that is huge. Does this happen with your current project? Yes, definitely. So for so that my PhD project, we needed 40 people. Our current project, we need 216 people in total. We're doing it over a few years and we're doing it in waves. Um, so for example, just our last wave that we've just completed, we had 26 people ended up being in the study, but we were recruiting for months and months before that, going on the news and going um wherever we could, um, flyers and Facebook advertising again. And we also needed to do a one and a half hour screening on 60 people to get to those 26. And to get to those 60 people, we also had to contact a few hundred. Um, This is also via email or people going onto our website. So luckily we didn't have to physically be on the phone, but um, a lot of those people we did because they have questions and they want to hear about the study. Um, So yeah, it's really a prevalent issue. especially also um, as we were talking about gaining the male perspective because um, it is known that a lot of females sometimes are more willing to sign up for studies um, and we don't want our results just to be um, applicable to um, we don't want our results to just apply to women especially um, the study we're running at the moment um, which is about learning music um, and being in a choir or being on the keyboard. And we don't want to say just women signed up and just they, you know, experienced benefits or had a good time or um, enjoyed the socialization. We'd love to have to say that both genders um, benefited from it, which is why it's so important as well. I know the statistics for dementia indicate that women are uh, more impacted than men. I uh... I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, a lot of men aren't actually diagnosed um, in their dementia journey, um, m- maybe because they don't uh, put their hand up or they're looked after so well by their wives, they never actually get to the doctor and and, uh, and see. So it's very important that we actually have a male influence on on them. Um, on these research projects. There's a lot of sheds out there that have music groups, bands and choirs, but you're not looking after people with musical experience, are you? No, we're actually looking for people who have never played a musical instrument or being in a choir or they've had, you know, less than three formal years of training in their whole lives to come and learn something new because what we're looking at is, so one of the main preventatives for dementia, they say, is cognitive training. But a lot of the time that's on a computer, it's not always so interesting. People don't always stick with it. We want to see if we can get those um benefits from joining a choir or learning the keyboard, learning something new and 
also, you know, being in a social environment, getting that sense of achievement, being around music, being in the beautiful conservatorium of music in the city. We're trying to see if you, you can do that cognitive training in a more enjoyable way through this, then that would be amazing if we could show that. Okay, so your research is currently being run in uh, Sydney at the Conservatorium of Music, is that right? Yeah, where people come to the Brain and Mind Centre in Camperdown to get um, sort of blood collection and MRI, um, and they go on to Zoom to do some memory cognitive testing beforehand, and then they go into the Conservatorium of Music in the city once a week on a Thursday for three months, um, and they learn what ever they are random they randomly allocated that's the other thing so it's that bit of chance of who you're going to meet and which group you're going to be allocated and then they come into the brain and mind center in Camberdown again at the end for follow-ups okay so there's a fair fair bit involved in actually participating in this research project it's not just about filling out forms you actually get to go places and uh, get all sorts of tests and and so on you don't actually need to have dementia to do this test, do you? In fact, that would actually not be, that would make you not eligible if you had dementia. We're looking for people with just a bit of memory impairment. So people who are starting to forget a few things, they've noticed some changes in their thinking in the past few years. So definitely um, not looking for people with dementia, um, just looking for people with some memory difficulties at this stage. People uh, without a, a diagnosis, but are, that are concerned about their, um, you know, their, their memory. Uh, and we all have those opportunities where we, or, or the situations where we walk into a room and we go, what did I come in here for? Um, you know, that's just being overwhelmed memory-wise. But, you know, forgetting different events or struggling to remember events is, is, is maybe something that indicates that uh, you you might be eligible for this particular um, research project and um, like Zoe said she's uh, operating that down in uh, Sydney uh, so anyone in the Sydney sheds we'd love you to uh, participate and sign up for this project. Tell us a little more about the cohort that you're looking for to join this project. Yeah, definitely. So we're looking for people between 60 to 90 years old, um, people that are obviously free and available on a Thursday to actually get to the Conservatorium of Music in the city, in Sydney. Um, people who have little to no music experience um, but are willing to learn and happy to be in a social environment. Um, I can say that people have been they've created little whatsapp groups some of the groups have really gotten along and they're going on little adventures together afterwards because they're all in the city so it's anyone who's sort of you don't need to be looking for something social but that's always a fun benefit um but mainly yeah that just slight forgetting so even some people in the trial you wouldn't be able to tell that they're forgetting, but just um, we do an hour of cognitive testing on Zoom beforehand. And it's just those subtle changes that we're looking for anything down to just before a diagnosis of dementia. Yeah. Um, and yeah, those are the main things that, oh, and also anyone happy to get a um, brain scan and a blood test. Um, from us as well um, and also access to the internet because um, we recommend that participants practice um, so those are uploaded onto YouTube so uh, access to the internet is quite important um, and also knowing that there are three groups that um, so happy to be in any one of our three groups because you don't get to choose so either <laughs> learning the keyboard being in a choir or watching film related um, sorry music related films at for once a week and discussing them with a group, but then anyone who's allocated to the film group after six months is um, given the opportunity to join one of the other groups based on availability. So um, there's always a chance to join something more musical afterwards. Uh, the other thing that you forgot to mention there, Zoe, was you're after men. Uh, going back to the figures thing, you're looking for 200 participants. How many females have you got signed up so far? So far, it would be the majority film females are in our cohort. I haven't actually counted, but we, we were definitely looking for more men to balance it out and round it out. Because um, mm -hmm. as I said, we definitely don't want it to just be females enjoy join, learning these instruments and being in a choir and socializing and they got all the benefits. We want love and even split. Um, so it, we definitely are looking for more men, 100%. 
<laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> All right, uh, Zoe, um, just in regards to another thing I, that I, I saw on your email that you sent in, you're offering uh, community presentations on um, healthy brain ageing. Now, I imagine that would uh, be to uh, the, the Sydney region, uh, I would imagine. I can't see you you travelling to Perth to do a presentation unless someone puts up the money. Uh, yeah, definitely. So we have been going around. We've done about four or five so far where we're doing little community presentations and we'd love to do more. They last about one hour um, to an hour and a half where we have half of it um, on healthy brain aging. So what to do um, if you notice your memory is going, um, where to go, what to look for, um, how to prevent it. Um, we talk a bit about our healthy brain aging clinic here in Camperdown, which is free to come in and have an assessment. And then the other half, we also talk about the neuromusic trial and what that involves, um, as I've spoken a bit about on this podcast. So if anyone is interested in having a community presentation um, at there. If you have any links to community hubs, definitely reach out. We um, it's true, we we're not going to be going past Sydney, especially as we're promoting our trial and our clinic. But um, if you're in Sydney, definitely reach out. But this trial will be going over the next couple of years, you were saying? Yeah, so we've just started, we've just finished our first 26 participants out of 216. So they're doing in waves of three months. So right. we'll be doing it for the next two years. Wow, that's a huge project and I, I do wish you well. Um, Zoe, how do people sign up? I know they can go to the um, Step Up for Dementia <coughs> uh, org website, uh, .org.au website. Um, you're not on the uh, Join Us uh, website as yet, uh, but if they wanted to contact you directly, how can they do that? Definitely. So that if you just Google Neuromusic Trial, um, you'll the first link is for the University of Sydney, or um, so you can just go on that. Our the website is actually Neuromusic, just Neuromusic.sydney.edu. .au, um, but you can also just Google Neuromusic Trial um, and that will take you to our website um, and that's got our phone number, our email and also if you click on um, are you eligible to participate, there's a little online screening. So to sign up for the study, you just need to fill out this little online screening on the are you eligible to participate page um, and that will um, hopefully help us determine um, who's eligible, who's not. You can also click on our participant information sheet and read about the trial to see if it's suitable for you. And once you fill out that, are you eligible to participate, you'll go on our calling list and we'll give you a call. But if you have any trouble with it, our phone and email is there too, so you can reach out directly. Zoe, once again, thank you very much for joining us today and telling us about your research project and the importance of how uh, men participating in research will impact the actual results and outcomes and uh, ensure that our voices are heard. Thank you very much, Zoe, for joining me today. Thank you very much, JPY. Over to you. Thank you. On the road, on the Shed Wireless. Well, the last time we spoke to Butch, we did give a hint that we were going to talk about doing some fishing things with your grandkids. And Butch is right here, right now. So what's the, the best way to involve the kids in I, fishing? Yeah, yeah th thanks for inviting me again, John. Uh, I think the best way to get the kids interested in fishing, or one of the best ways, is gathering bait. Uh -huh. If you remember back in the day, you, your dad probably took you out the back garden or somewhere with a, you know, with a spade and grab some worms out of there. How much fun was that? Fact, the first time I ever went fishing of any kind was in Glasgow oh. uh, with a, a little a little net yep. on, a, on a stick yep. and, uh, and skimming the water for, uh, for tadpoles and yeah. anything that was in the water. You're just trying to grab it. Yeah. Yep. yeah, well, that's it. That's what I'm getting at. So if you're inland, for example, you can go to some, somebody's farm and catch those yabbies, those freshwater yabbies. So, mm. And kids just love that. All you need is a piece of string, a bit of meat on the end, throw it in and wait for them to grab it and then just pull on the string. You just bring them in slowly, get a little net, put it under the yabby and you've got them. I've heard that um, yabbies are actually vegetarians. That's, tr that's and, correct. Uh, and the reason why they grab onto the meat is mm. because they want it away from them. That, that, that's supposedly the theory. Yeah. But the funny thing is all those crustaceans seem to like meat. 
For example, if you're up in the tropics and you're catching, say, live cherubim, which are a live inland prawn, mm-hmm. we, we used to use um, meat that you would use for pet food. In other words, even dry pet food, you know, mm. and you just put that in as bait in your trap. And they would go for that. And other people would put soap, soap, yep. and that would work. So there's something in the soap, uh, some some sort of fat. oil fat. Yeah. Fat, but remember yeah. when we went fishing up in uh, like uh, Tinaru and yes. we were getting those red claw. And remember yes. the guide said, forget all that, we'll just put pumpkin in. That's remember? True. And he used pumpkin. Yeah. And and the good thing about getting them with pumpkin, they didn't eat much, but they still come into the trap. So that that's the vegetarian part of it. Right. But anyhow, getting back to gathering bait in, in inland, so you've got things like grasshoppers too. People, you know, yep. kids running around with a net catching catching grasshoppers. Yeah, how good is that? You know, and crickets, and they'll catch everything: trout, uh, mullet, all that sort of stuff. Yep. And then if you're if you're on the ocean side anywhere, you know, where there's a beach or something, I'd I'd be looking at getting them catching beach worms. Now I've never caught one myself, <laughs> but there are experts out there. And if you show a bit of interest, somebody you'll see someone on a beach waving a, a stocking around on the water and you'll go up and it'll be all smelly and you'll think, what are you doing? And they'll say, oh, we're getting beach worms. If you get your grandkids down there, they'll just love that. They'll just watch the guy pulling these beach worms out. Hmm. And if they get good at it, they can do it themselves. And, of course, in estuaries, uh, there's the, uh, the everlasting prawn. Oh, absolutely. How much fun is that prawning? At yeah. night, eh? Yeah. As kids. Well, not even as kids. I mean, later oh, on. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the thrill of the catch never leaves you, even though it's a tiny little prawn. <laughs> it's, it's just, got it! <laughs> and there's also, you're likely to get a, you know, a couple of blue swim crabs or a couple of squid. But the good thing about these days is, for kids, you could do that just waiting. And these days with LED Headlight torches, you don't have to have those complicated kerosene lamps we used to use. Indeed. We used to pump them up. They were yep. really awkward and heavy and they were dangerous. Mm. But now you just buy an LED lamp for Bunnings or somewhere, stick it on the kid's head, yep. turn it on, and you've got instant light. Yep. You need a, a, a broad broad uh, sweep of light mm. and it needn't be powerful. Yep. You can always see them because you see the, the, their little eyes blinking with the reflection of the light in their Pink eyes, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, what else is, uh, so we've done insects, prawns, um, We've got yabbies. freshwater yabbies. Now we're talking about pink nippers, which are the saltwater yabbies yep. that you pump up. Mm-hmm. Remember that? You just yes. pump them up and then you squirt the squirt them out and the kids run around picking the pink nippers up. Yeah, and you, but you've got to check your, uh, your local rules for that because some Absolutely. places you aren't yeah. allowed to pump for yeah. yabbies. I know Sydney Harbour, for example, is totally right. banned, but it's totally banned worms, everything. You're not allowed to ca- take anything for intertidal zone in Sydney Harbour. But most other places you're allowed to. So, okay. yeah, you're right. Check check where you can. Yep. But pumping pumping <laughs> those pink nippers is so much fun. And and the and you get the worms come up, the squirt worms, all that sort of stuff. Yep. So, yeah. I, I, all you need is to buy a pump too. I mean, yep. there you go. And then anywhere knee deep water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, especially in summertime, you know, because that's yeah. that is the the yeah. best time to to go bait collecting, and when it's not well, too chilly. Yeah, and not only that, but a lot of those pink nippers and stuff go dormant, and they go deeper, and they don't come up. So, and not only that, but the fish that are feeding on those sort of things, they don't feed on those in winter. They mm-hmm. go into deeper water. Right. So you're whiting and your brim, and the and your trevally and all those sort of things that come into the you know into the shallow water looking for pink nippers and worms. Forget it in winter. They go into deeper water, uh-huh. which is a whole new kettle of fish, so to speak. And, of course, you can always use garden worms. Absolutely. 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 The only thing about garden worms in the salt is they do die. They die pretty quickly. Uh-huh. But they still look like a worm, so therefore they're likely to work, you know. Yeah. I've caught brim and whiting on garden worms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've sort of covered that. Now, we'll, we'll sign off for this week. In our next little chat, yep. seeing as it is winter time, it is. We'll talk about some winter fish and uh, and winter fishing. Okay, fantastic. Okay, thanks again, Butch. That's okay. Well, uh, well, this is rather awkward and uh, a bit sad for me because um, my good old mate Butch, uh, he's uh, he's gone missing uh, up in Cape York. Uh, went fishing as usual. You know, I've known Butch for. 48 years. God, we've caught some fish together, I can tell you that. Um, I don't know, if you ever go back to the Rocktober gig that we did with ACDC and uh, 
and the Ted Mulry gang back in the 70s and uh, Butch was there as well and he was ferrying people to and from the barge where we had the big concert, the big Rocktober concert over in uh, North Sydney and uh, and there's, there's still some uh, footage out there where you can see Butch in his little boat taking people on and off uh, the barge out there. Um, I really hope they find him. Uh, it's just sad, you know, it's really sad. Anyway, you can go back through the Men's Shed's uh, Wireless Episodes catalogue to check out some of my other chats with Butch and get something out of the great advice that he had to impart. The feelings that that come with uh, losing mates are no stranger to us shedders, but that doesn't make it easier. In times of loss and grief, it's important to lean on your mates. Or if you know someone who has lost a friend recently, check in and let them know you're there. If you're really struggling, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 <laughs> That's a wrap for today's episode. Drop me an email to theshedwireless at menshed.net. Remember to share the podcast with your shedding mates. Give them a hand to follow along on Spotify or send them to www.org forward slash theshedwireless. Until next time, folks, for the love of shedding. Whatever is your game, everyone's the same. Yeah, we can do it all at the men's shed. Short, fat, tall, skinny, hairy, bald. In the shed, it's welcome one and all. Share the skills you know, we're all having a go. 